Something to get off my chest My life is kinda boring It's something that I can't confess Till on my sleeves I stain red From all the truth that I've said Combine it honestly That's exactly what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give all my secrets away. All of them. Every single one of them. Now, I want you to envision a world gripped by the iron fist of a tyrannical government, cloaked in the shadows of deceit and corruption under the guise of being the beacon of democracy. And for years, actually centuries, <laughs> they've reigned with impunity, their oppressive rules stifling the voices of the oppressed and suppressing any semblance of freedom throughout history. But unbeknownst to them, a silent resistance was forming through the eons. A clandestine type network of individuals that are actually decentralized, who refused to surrender their humanity to the shackles of tyrants. So as the tyrants clung desperately to their waning power this past decade, they devised a grand scheme of deception. They employed all available outlets to condition the minds of the people, distorting truth and presenting their prosecution for heinous crimes against humanity as an attack on a democracy itself. They played the role of innocent victims, masterfully manipulating the narrative to demonize those who dared to stand up against their reign. Yet amidst the chaos and confusion by the tyrants, a small team of very few extraordinary beings emerged. Scattered across the globe like little beacons of hope, these super soldiers gifted with unrivaled intellect, unparalleled abilities, infiltrated the shit out of them and recognized the depth of the tyranny's deception. They saw through the web of lies and propaganda, even though they were conditioned to serve it. They understood that the fate of humanity was at the balance. The fate of their nation was at the balance. The fate of choosing between sovereignty and submission was at the balance. So operating in the shadows beyond the reach of the tyrant's control or maybe right in the middle of the beast, they dedicated themselves out on <laughs> a fatalistic, perilous mission to rectify the wrongs inflicted upon the people. And with unwavering determination, they strategized, they gathered intelligence and orchestrated precise strikes against the pillars of tyrannical regime. And their actions were usually swift and precise and relentless, a testament to their unwavering commitment to justice and liberation of humanity, bringing us to the point that we are now. Nothing can deter people that are focused on the mission, people that are focused on service. The tyrants, in their desperation, have unleashed all their resources to extinguish this flickering flame of resistance, which has aided into fanning it into a raging, roaring fire. They branded these defenders of humanity as terrorists, seeking further to manipulate the minds of the people they have kept in chains so long. But many have remained undeterred. Because they understood that truth cannot be suppressed indefinitely. So with every act of defiance, with every revelation of the tyrant's atrocities, their movement grew stronger. It made it look as stupid as possible. The people, once subjected to conditioning and manipulation, began to awaken from their slumber and their eyes opened to the stark reality of their subjugation. 
And as the tide began to turn, what did we see tyrants do? They find themselves besieged from all sides. The people, emboldened by the courage and resilience of the very few that have sacrificed everything. There are so many people out there that have sacrificed things that you have no idea. FBI whistleblowers just gave you a taste. This unseen war that has been waged for so long has shifted in the favor of justice and liberation. Oh, boy, has it. The triumph of humanity is inevitable. Nothing can stop what's coming. And this small team of fire starters, united by a common purpose, that don't even talk. They continued this relentless pursuit of truth and justice. So I want you to think how right now, at this very moment, the conditioning that the people have been undergoing through the mass media, through social media, through local influence networks, through consumer markets employing, you know, regulations, rules, and policies within themselves is simply to make them look like they are unfairly persecuted. And those that are persecuting them are in the wrong. Don't look at the crimes against children. Don't look at the crimes against humanity. We want to give you free money. We want to help you. Don't listen to them. Huh? These are the death rattles you cannot see because you do not stand at the 40,000 foot mark. True warriors, true agents of change rise as self-appointed champions against the tyrannical regime that has inflicted unspeakable crimes against humanity beyond what you could ever believe it is. All unified under one goal. Not under one team, not under one banner. One goal, that is all. One goal. They've made it look as stupid as possible. One goal. Simply one goal. Allow me to elaborate. Listen very carefully to this conversation. Very carefully to this conversation. You said you were an attorney. You're a very good prosecutor. I That's true. We got a problem here. And the problem is developing this. You said you were an attorney. You're a very good prosecutor. I believe it. I've read your bio. You're a good attorney. You understand what quid pro quo is, correct? I do. You understand what asking for something in exchange for something actually means, correct? I do. You know about the conversation of Mr. Biden when he asked and he said, I'm not going to give you the billion dollars. You know about that conversation, correct? The, you, you want me to read it to you or do you know it? One second. Are you talking about in 2015? No, I'm talking about the one from the national uh, where you did the... I'll read it to you since you're having trouble. As I remember going over to the Ukraine, convincing our team, our leaders convincing them that we should provide for loan guarantees. As I went over, I guess the 12th or 13th time to Kiev, I was supposed to announce that there was a billion dollar loan guarantee. And I got a commitment from Poroshenko and they said that I would take action against... that they would take action against the state prosecutor. They didn't. So they, so they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference. I said, nah, I'm not going to, or we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have authority, you have no authority, you're not the president. The president said, I said, call him, laughter. I said, I'm telling you, you're, getting, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion dollars. I'm getting, I'm, getting, uh, I'm getting ready to be leaving here, and I think about six hours, I looked at them and said, I'm leaving here in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Did he ask for something, request something, and hold something of value? He did. George Kent testified that that I was... I think I'll do what you did. George Kent testified this. I'm asking about not George Kent. I'm asking about this question. Right, but it, it's important context. It's not. 
answer this question. Did he or did he not? He's a, either Joe Biden's a, a liar, telling a story to make people impressed, or he actually did this. Which is it? He did it pursuant to U.S. official policy. So he did it in holding, withholding actual dollars, actual thing, holding this out there. So Joe Biden, of everybody that we discussed about, is the only one that's done a quid pro quo. He's the only one that's used taxpayer dollars to actually threaten a foreign government. And yet we're sitting here pretending that this is not happening? We're sitting here pretending that a president of the United States now would not be concerned? Look, you look at it this way, Joe Biden's a terrible candidate. He can destroy himself on the campaign trail, but he can't get by this. And it doesn't matter who brings it up, it doesn't matter who does it, because this is what happened. And you can whitewash it all you want, you can go over whatever you want, but that's what he did. He's either a liar, or he did it, and he did it. I want to continue on. Question is, a question that you had earlier. You rely on how many, approximately how many times do you rely on Gordon Sondland's testimony? In your report. Oh, I, I, it's a nearly a 300 page report. I Would you be amazed if it was 600 times or better? I, 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 you wouldn't have any idea or not? I have no idea. Okay, you did. It's over 600 times. Would you also understand if you do a simple check of your report that over 158 times Mr. Sondland said, instead of knowing, not knowing something, to the best of my knowledge, or I don't know. Would that surprise you? Are, are you talking about the report or his deposition? The, the deposition and the closed-door testimony. Yes, and over time he remembered a lot more as he was refreshed by other yeah, people's testimony. It is. The question we're having here, though, is Mr. Sondland also said, and many times he said he presumed what actually happened. Let's go back to something else. We're going to continue this in just a moment. According to your report, HIPSI, and we'll classify that and we'll determine that to be the Intelligence Committee and the other investigation with the other two committees. We okay with that? Certainly. Okay. Issued dozens of subpoenas, is that right? Uh, I'm not, uh, certainly over a dozen, yes. Some of the subpoenas were not publicly reported until the HIPSI issued its majority report, correct? Uh, most of the subpoenas were Answer not the question, is Mr. Burke had so much free reign, let's go at it. Either answer the question or elaborate, one or the other. Sir, I'm trying to answer the question. Uh, did you or didn't you? Is, did it come out or not? Did what come out? I'll read it again. Some of the subpoenas were not publicly reported until the HIPSI issued its majority report, correct? Yes, they were given to the minority, but not pub the public. Yes. Putting aside the witnesses who have publicly been identified, did you issue any other subpoenas for testimony other than the ones publicly identified? I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think okay. so. Thank you. But I'm not sure. How many subpoenas were issued for records? Well, we issued an, uh, a number of subpoenas for records. We, we did issue six subpoenas to um, executive branch agencies and they all defied our subpoenas. In this, moving on to other uh, issues here. The Wall Street Journal reported that the committee issued at least four subpoenas to Verizon and AT&T for call records. Is that correct? Um, we are we wondering? Yeah, yes, we are because um, there are multiple numbers. Um, it's we we only issued subpoenas for call records for people who were involved in the investigation and who had already been subpoenaed by the committee for documents and testimony of their own. Absolutely wonderful uh, uh, stuff. But answer my question. Four. Well, I am trying to answer your question. Was it at least four? Yes. Thank you. Could have saved us a lot of time there. How many subpoenas were issued at and I don't know off the top Can of my head. Can you check your records? 
Right. This I is important because we just found out about this over the weekend. We got a massive document dump over the weekend preparing for this hearing in which the chairman admitted and the staff admitted they're not going to be able to read it all anyway. So for all of you writing reports about this, all that massive document dump, we're just simply going on a shift report which shift refuses to come testify about but sends the staff. So this is important stuff. We just found out about this. So how many subpoenas were issued to AT&T? I, I don't know. If you'd like me to find That's out fine. the break, I'd know, be happy then, to. Then, again, maybe your chairman could be here to actually answer this. Was it targeted at a single telephone number or numbers? We, we subpoenaed for call records multiple numbers. How many? I, I don't know. None, none of, uh, this okay, is very important though. None of members of Congress, none of staff of Congress. Oh, we're getting to that. None of journalists. We're getting to that. We only did it to the subjects who were involved in the investigation, which is a very routine and standard investigative and, practice. Sir. And you're not going to hear anything from me about a subpoena and the legality of a subpoena. My problem is this. Who asked, who on the committee asked that those numbers that you actually did put into the run, into for a subpoena and get those numbers back? Who was it that asked that they be cross-checked for members of the media and, and members of the Congress? Who ordered that? I don't think that's how we did it, sir. No. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You came out with a report that actually showed these people, such as Mr. Chairman Nunez and others, were actually on these calls. Yes. Now someone, and you and I, we're not going to play cute here. Somebody took the four records that you asked for, or at least four, took those numbers and then said, hey, let's play uh, match game. Who ordered the match game for members of Congress and the press? Was it you? I don't, I don't think anyone did, sir. Then how did you get, yeah, okay, come on, that's the most ridiculous item I've ever heard. You don't just all of a sudden pick up numbers in which you have to match those numbers to actually show where they are, and you don't come up with them. Who ordered them to actually match for members of Congress and the press? That's actually, what you just described is exactly how it happened. You ha you pick who an event. ordered to find out if Nunez's number was on those calls? If I could just explain, sir. You pick an event of significance in the investigation, and you look for sequencing and patterns surrounding that event. You look then at the numbers, and you try to identify what those numbers are, and then you start to build the circumstantial case. At this point, that's a wonderful explanation, but not an answer to my question. Those are you looking for the four numbers you asked for and to see how they're connected. I understand the subpoena that you issued. My question directly, was it you or was it Chairman Schiff that said, while we're doing this, let's see if this matches Chairman Nunez's number. Let's see if this matches a member of the press's number. Somebody along the way just didn't all of a sudden have an epiphany, unless you're getting ready to throw a low-level staffer under the bus, that these numbers might match. So who did it? Was it Chairman Schiff or was it you? Um, Be careful, you're under oath. I know I'm under oath, sir. Then answer the question. Matter. And I will answer the question if you give me a second here. It's not a simple answer. The same answer. second that was not afforded to my witness, by the way. Well, well I think he was and allowed to Who decided to, to leak question. it, by the way? If you're not going to tell me the other story, while you're thinking about how you're going to answer that question, who decided to leak it, the information? Why did you include it in the report? That's not a leak, sir. Why did you include it in the report? After not saying anything else about this, not publicly known. So two questions are hanging out that everybody's looking for an answer for, including me. Who ordered it? Was it you or was it Chairman Schiff? And then why was it decided, except for nothing but smear purposes, to be included in the Schiff report? Well, I, I'm not going to get into the deliberations of our investigation with you. And I will tell you the reason it was included in the report is because it, it, the calls were surrounding important evidence to our investigation. And I think that your question is frankly not better directed not at me, but at the people who were having conversations. Oh, no, no, no. We're not going to play that game. No, we're not going to play that game. You're, you're as good as Mr. Burke. You're not going to play that game. You're not answering the question. 
and every member of the media, everybody here, when you start going into the decorum of this house, when you start looking at members' telephone numbers, you start looking at reporters' telephone numbers, which they ought to be scared about, you took a subpoena for four. And then you decided to play match game. You found numbers that you thought were like, some of them actually didn't exist because you, they claimed that they were for the White House budget office, and they were not. So we're throwing stories out there because nobody was, nobody was out there acting. So I go back to my question. Are you going to go on record in front of everybody here today and say that you will not tell who ordered this? You or Mr. Goldman? Mr. Goldman, you or Mr. Schiff? I am going to go on record and tell you that I'm not going to reveal how we conducted this investigation. And that's the problem we have with this entire thing. Mr. Schiff said behind closed doors. I can doors tell you what the importance time. is. I'm done it. with you for right now. We're done. done. You're not answering the question. You're not being honest about this answer because you know who it is. You're just not answering. Mr. Castor. I have some information on the subpoenas. Let's go. We did receive copies of the subpoenas, and we, we we tracked this. There were six, as I understand it. And, and let me just say at the outset, our, our members have concerns about this exercise for three reasons. Your, the, the subpoenas yielded information about members of Congress. Whether they're subpoenaed, the members' phone records or not, it's a concern when the information yields member of Congress's phone records, and then the information is publicized. Second is with journalists. It's just generally a very tricky area to start investigating journalists' call records. And the third is, is with regard to Mr. Giuliani, who is serving as the president's personal attorney. But there's six subpoenas, as we understand it. Um, the first went to AT&T for the Giuliani numbers. The second was uh, in regard to Igor Fruman to a company, uh, CSC Holdings. The third uh, related to Mr. Sondland. That was off to Verizon. The fourth was back to AT&T, uh, seeking information uh, on a certain number. The fifth was back to AT&T. And the sixth was seeking subscriber information, um, which impacted the, the veteran journalist John Solomon, and also involved with these are, are some, you know, some of the attorneys involved, such Mr. as... Mr. Castor, can I ask you a question? Ms. Tunsing and Geneva. Mr. Castor, you've been a, a veteran of the Hill investigation for 15 years, and this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. You never have either. Would it be interesting to note, because Mr. Uh, Goldman chooses not to answer because he doesn't want to incriminate, I believe, either himself or the chairman or somebody else. Would it be interesting to you to find, as you've dealt with uh, committee staff for a long time, somebody to just have a, an epiphany just to do those match records on their own, or were they under direction by somebody to do that? Well, it, it's obviously they were trying to figure something out. That's it. All right, one last, uh, well, I'm getting ready to try, wait, wait, I have one thing for Mr. Goldman. Mr. Goldman, we're used to committees and people and witnesses coming, taking gratuitous shots at people they don't like. And earlier today, in your testimony, you made a comment that really goes with an interesting thing, and I'll even go back to the chairman questioning motive. When your testimony, you said, as you were discussing Mr. Sondland, you made a very snide comment, your, actually your facial expression showed, that he was a million dollar donor to the president. The implication being he either got his job because he bought it, or his implication was he was loyal to the president and say anything about it. Be very careful about how you throw around dollars in, in giving, because you and Mr. Burke are real heavy donors to the Democratic Party, and I'm not going to say it questions your motive or your position here today, but we need to make sure that this thing is already blown out of proportion. We're already not answering questions, and you are here 
without a pen because your chairman will not testify. That says all we need to hear. He don't even stand behind his own report, and he sends you. I hope it works out for you. I'm done. At this point, I turn it over to Ashley. Could I, could I respond? Are you, are you trying to say that, that I uh, – what are you trying to say? What is the implication? Yeah, he should. He, he. Whoops, sorry. He should. He should totally be panicking, right? Because this is a big deal. This is a very big deal. As you can understand, a lot was being said. A lot. So, one might have to ask themselves, "Well, what's going on?" Well. <laughs> Remember in 2020, I was like, hey, if I have Bank of America, Wells Fargo and Chase, I would be sending them letters saying, hey, can you give me a copy of the subpoena that allowed you to check my shit? AT&T, mm, Sondland. Okay, let's talk about him for a second. You know who he is? He's just a hotel guy from Seattle. I love Seattle. He was the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. I think we should watch his testimony, just some of it, because maybe that'll shed a tiny bit of light, because we should be talking about Gordon. This is from the House Intelligence Committee hearing about the impeachment of President Trump three years ago. Here we go. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you, uh, Ranking Member Nunes. I appreciate the opportunity to speak again to the members of this committee. <coughs> First, let me offer my thanks to the men and women of the U.S. Department of State who have committed their professional lives to support the foreign policy work of the United States. In particular, I want to thank my staff at the U.S. Mission to the European Union your integrity, dedication, and hard work, often performed without public acclaim or recognition, serve as a shining example of true public service. And I am personally grateful to work beside you each and every day. It is my honor to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union. The U.S. mission to the EU is the direct link between the United States and the European Union and its members. America's longest standing allies and one of the largest economic blocs in the world. Every day, I work to support a strong, united, and peaceful Europe. Strengthening our ties with Europe serves both American and European goals as we together promote political stability and economic prosperity around the world. I expect that few Americans have heard my name before these events. So before I begin my substantive testimony, please let me share some of my personal background. My parents fled Europe during the Holocaust. Escaping the atrocities of that time, my parents left Germany for Uruguay and then in 1953 emigrated to Seattle, Washington, where I was born and raised. Like so many immigrants, my family was eager for freedom and hungry for opportunity. 
They raised my sister and me to be humble, hardworking, and patriotic. And I am forever grateful for the sacrifices they made on our behalf. Public service has always been important to me. As a lifelong Republican, I have contributed to initiatives of both Republican and Democratic administrations. In 2003, I served as a member of the transition team for Oregon Democratic Governor Ted Kulingowski. Governor Kulingowski also appointed me to serve on various statewide boards. In 2007, President George W. Bush appointed me as a member of the Commission on White House Fellows. I worked with President Bush on charitable events for his Foundation's Military Service Initiative, and I also worked briefly with former Vice President Joe Biden's office in connection with the Vice President's nationwide anti-cancer initiative at a local Northwest hospital. And of course, the highest honor in my public life came when President Trump asked me to serve as the United States Ambassador to the European Union. The Senate confirmed me as an ambassador on a bipartisan voice vote, and I assumed the role in Brussels on July 9, 2018. Although today is my first public testimony on the Ukraine matters, this is not my first time cooperating with this committee. As you know, I've already provided 10 hours of deposition testimony, and I did so despite directives from the White House and the State Department that I refuse to appear, as many others have done. I agreed to testify because I respect the gravity of the moment, and I believe I have an obligation to account fully for my role in these events. But I also must acknowledge that this process has been challenging and in many respects, less than fair. I have not had access to all of my phone records, State Department emails, and many, many other State Department documents. And I was told I could not work with my EU staff to pull together the relevant files and information. Having access to the State Department materials would have been very helpful to me in trying to reconstruct with whom I spoke and met, and when and what was said. As ambassador, I've had hundreds of meetings and calls with individuals, but I'm not a note taker or a memo writer, never have been. My job requires that I speak with heads of state, senior government officials, members of the cabinet, the president, almost each and every day. Talking with foreign leaders might be memorable to some people, but this is my job. I do it all the time. My lawyers and I have made multiple requests to the State Department and the White House for these materials. Yet, these materials were not provided to me, and they have also refused to share these materials with this committee. These documents are not classified, and in fairness, and in fairness, should have been made available. In the absence of these materials, my memory admittedly has not been perfect. And I have no doubt that a more fair, open, and orderly process of allowing me to read the State Department records and other materials would have made this process far more transparent. 
I don't intend to repeat my prior opening statement or attempt to summarize 10 hours of previous deposition testimony. However, a few critical points have been obscured by noise over the last few days and weeks, and I'm worried that the bigger picture is being ignored. So let me make a few key points. First, Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and I worked with Mr. Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine matters at the express direction of the President of the United States. We did not want to work with Mr. Giuliani. Simply put, we were playing the hand we were dealt. We all understood that if we refused to work with Mr. Giuliani, we would lose a very important opportunity to cement relations between the United States and Ukraine. So we followed the President's orders. Second, although we disagreed with the need to involve Mr. Giuliani, at the time we did not believe that his role was improper. As I previously testified, if I had known of all of Mr. Giuliani's dealings or his associations with individuals, some of whom are now under criminal indictment, I personally would not have acquiesced to his participation. Still, given what we knew at the time, what we were asked to do did not appear to be wrong. Third, let me say, Precisely because we did not think that we were engaging in improper behavior, we made every effort to ensure that the relevant decision makers at the National Security Council and the State Department knew the important details of our efforts. The suggestion that we were engaged in some irregular or rogue diplomacy is absolutely false. I have now identified certain State Department emails and messages that provide contemporaneous support for my view. These emails show that the leadership of the State Department, the National Security Council, and the White House were all informed about the Ukraine efforts from May 23, 2019 until the security aid was released on September 11, 2019. I will quote from some of those messages with you shortly. Fourth, as I testified previously, as I testified previously. Hold on, let's get to the email reading. Damn it, I should have early. Here we go. To Odessa is to emphasize that Ukraine has been a part of my portfolio from my very first days as the U.S. Ambassador. Any claim that I somehow muscled my way into the Ukraine relationship is simply false. During the Zelensky inauguration on May 20th, the U.S. delegation developed a very positive view of the Ukraine government. We were impressed by President Zelensky's desire to promote a stronger relationship with the United States. We admired his commitment to reform, and we were excited about the possibility of Ukraine 
making the changes necessary to support a greater Western economic investment. Let me translate for you. So Robert Storch, as the IG of the NSA strong-armed the Ukraine to place Zelensky where he wants so that way we can own them. Hope that helped. And we were excited that Ukraine might, after years and years of lip service, finally get serious about addressing its own well-known corruption problems. With that enthusiasm, we returned to the and let's remember the IG of the NSA at the time, Robert Storch, who is now the IG of the DOD. Well, he founded the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of the Ukraine with his wife, who's there, and trains journalists. All right. So they're embracing their own anti-corruption. You mean... They're embracing the tyranny on their own citizens to maintain the status quo and the deal that you've struck with the UN system. White House on May 23rd to brief President Trump. We advised the president of the strategic importance of Ukraine and the value of strengthening the relationship with President Zelensky. To support this reformer, we asked the White House for two things. First, a working phone call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky, and second, a working Oval Office visit. In our view, in our views, let me just ask, let me just tell you what we wanted. We were expressing to tr President Trump, I'm telling you what he's saying. This is a translation, of course. So what we came to President Trump was to tell him how important it is that we maintain the Ukraine in there or else the whole UN system fails. And President Trump smiled. Oh, okay. Is that what you want? Yeah. Oh, no. No, what we want is for you to have a nice, perfect phone call with him. We will, you know, facilitate that phone call with him. Right? We will set up this phone call with him. We will set up the trap for you, sir. So all we want you to do is get on that phone. And then what we want you to do is extend an invitation for him to come. Got it? So that way we can record it and leak it. So that way we can control you because so far we haven't been able to do it. And you're very well aware of how much money the United States has dumped in Ukraine. Let's not forget that Igor with his blimps. You know, the balloons that we're shooting down, right? Hmm. Through parties for Schiff. Schiff has spearheaded a lot of Ukraine budgets over the past 10 years. You Congress loves the Ukraine. Strategic positioning. See, now it's starting to make sense. You can put the dots and connect them backwards, right? Very easily. Well, now let's fast forward to how this silencing is going. They tried to entrap the president, and he already knew it was coming, so it was fine. And then today, we get a nice uh, live hearing. Archivist, please make this two shows, because I'm not having a show tomorrow, and just in case my surgery doesn't go that well and I can't speak Thursday, um, I would like to make up for that. So, because Friday I'm definitely not doing a show because I can't. So, um, here we go. Now, with all that knowledge that you have, how you see how they created a trap and tried to convince him to walk in. Well, obviously, before they set the trap, you should take a look at the people that were talking about all these things. You know, the NSA, Storch, 
You know, all those things. They didn't like Rudy Giuliani because he already knew. And while Gordon worked the Ukraine desk, uh, he felt empowered because, I mean, the IG of the NSA is backing him. That means he oversees all communication. Where are you, uh, all these good people in the NSA? Rather than trying to hold someone hostage for, I don't know, maybe their alleged fetish to midget porn or something. Why don't you remember your oath? Just like these guys did. There will be songs sung for them. Being here, um, but I must tell you, I, I, I leave more skeptical and with more questions about the nature of this hearing than I began. I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Mr. Chairman, if I could think of a very short point of privilege. For the record, I left Congress in 2019 and returned in 2021. I believe the gentleman saw an absence of conduct by me when I wasn't in, con in Congress. I, I must say, I'm so fond of my friend from California. It was like he was still here. <laughs> and I thank my good friend from Virginia. Yield back. Yeah, and I would just point out before I recognize the gentleman from Louisiana that uh, just, just for the committee's Mr. benefit, Chairman? Mr. Vindman was not the whistleblower. Mr. Chairman, but he was retaliated against for testifying pursuant to a lawful subpoena. remained anonymous, and unlike Mr. Allen, we never saw Mr. Allen's willingness to give us the transcript. We never saw the transcript from the anonymous whistleblower. What are you talking about? There was a complaint that was publicly disclosed. Mr. Chairman, parliamentary inquiry. Gentleman made Well, I've already recognized Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. The Democrats, Chairman. our friends on the other side of the aisle, are trying their best to obscure the purpose of this hearing and to pretend like they don't understand the meaning of it. Here it is. Activists in the F... I am trying to show you. Oh, wait a minute, Ukraine. Wait a minute, Lev Parnas. Wait a minute, Igor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But now we have FBI whistleblowers that are fired for J6, but we're talking Ukraine and Vindman. I see. Pay attention. FBI and the Department of Justice have weaponized the full weight of their agencies against everyday Americans. It's alarming. The examples that have been highlighted by this committee are shocking to the sensibilities of all the people that we represent, and they want us to get action and answers and accountability. The FBI, here's a couple of examples. The FBI sought to uh, label concerned parents at school board meetings domestic terrorists. We know that they, they sought to recruit spies and informants inside the congregations of traditional Catholic churches. We know that they, they worked with the social media platforms hand in hand, almost as partners over the last two election cycles to censor and silence conservatives online that they disagreed with. Sometimes they were candidates. And now the people at this table who were patriots, who this bothered their consciences, who knew that this was against their oaths of, of service and their duty, spoke up and they're being retaliated against. Mr. O'Boyle, I wanted to just discuss one of these examples. In your transcribed interview with committee members, you stated that federal law enforcement involvement at school board meetings would, in your words, absolutely chill parents from exercising their First Amendment rights. Can you explain a little bit more by what you meant by that? Yes, so one of the examples given in uh, the congressional letter included an example where uh, a neighbor or, or somehow someone knew a parent that they believed was extreme, and so they called the FBI and reported that parent to the FBI. When citizens in this country get to a point where they can call the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world on their neighbor just because they disagree with them, that is chilling to the First Amendment rights of the people 
who are getting the FBI called on them. That is absolutely right. The parents who are concerned about their kids' education have a right to come to the school board, school board meeting and express those sentiments, and they should not have fear of the federal government investigating them or doing, as you testified and explained to us, that the FBI counterterrorism and criminal divisions came together to create a unique threat tag to label these parents domestic terrorists. Mr. O'Bull, is it accurate to say that you tried to fix all these issues within the FBI, through the chain of command, and it was only after no action was taken that then you came forward to Congress to disclose this information. It's accurate that we did discuss it at the squad level, um, but the FBI is set up in a way where line agents like me or line supervisors even, they're not going to be able to accomplish fixing such a vast problem from the inside of the FBI. It, and what you've done is exactly what federal law requires of you. We recognize, as was said here a moment ago, we recognize and protect whistleblowers for their patriotic duty. Why? Because it's essential to maintain the rule of law and to make sure that corruption does not fester throughout the government. And isn't it true that once the FBI found out you spoke to Congress, that your security clearance was then suspended? Yes, I believe that's what happened. And what effect has this had on your ability to provide for your young family? I've since had to rely on charity because the FBI stopped paying me and um, there's no other way for me to make a living. I know from other uh, whistleblowers that the FBI routinely denies them the ability to get outside employment. And then as a special agent, you can only make $7,500 a year outside of your government salary. So you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, we want to try to get our jobs back because we are trying to do our patriotic duty. But on the other hand, we still have families to take care for. It's so I feel for him. Same here. I had my contracts. I was working. I was paying for everything. I was just doing my own thing. They block you. They blackmail you. I can't even get a job at Walmart. I know. I know. I've tried to get a menial job for sure. I did. I'm just so grateful that the person that his is providing him charity is helping him because his family. So I'm grateful for them. Thank you. Thank you for supporting them. I get it. I may not be Mr. Boyle, Mr. O'Boyle. Oh boy, oh Boyle. He's awesome. Or Mr. Friend or Alan. But I feel them. I've been there. I know. And I'm so grateful that they're making this mainstream because if it's happening to them, I mean, is it so far-fetched that it's going to happen to you? I mean, it's happened to me, and I'm not Mr. O'Boyle. It's essentially a death sentence in the modern era. Yeah, talk about a chilling effect, right? Not only have we chilled the, the rights of parents to go and express their views, any other whistleblower better take note, right? They better take note. You may not be able to feed your family. It's disgusting. Your security clearance was wrongfully suspended. You have no recourse, right? Because here's the thing. The, the, if you wrongfully strip clearances, the FBI is the one that you appeal to, right? The FBI is supposed to investigate itself. Is that right? That's correct. I just want everybody to understand. We only, only got 40 seconds left. The FBI investigating itself. This is why we're here, folks. This, this committee, we have jurisdiction over the Department of Justice, over the FBI. We are the checks and balances in the system. We have to draw this uh, attention to this because it's our oversight duty. We're all trying to fulfill our responsibilities and our.
So how about all those other people that have lost the ability to feed themselves, to make them homeless, because they don't show loyalty to the ones they were serving. Instead, they know their oaths, and they're loyal to the U.S. Constitution. And you know what sucks? That people are so desensitized that so many of them have perished or have disappeared into the darkness because of it. I mean, I know. I live through it every single day. And I'm not an FBI agent. I know my clearances were stripped. Shit. Those went real quick in 2014. Real quick. Can't tell people about drones real quick. I am very happy that this is coming out mainstream because again, these are people that took their oath and I took my oath in 1995 as a kid. I'm the wiser of how important it would be to maintain it. It doesn't matter if you serve for a minute, you guys. When you take an oath, it should be sacred. And these people are upholding it. So again, thank you for supporting whistleblowers. Thank you for making this realized how traditional whistleblowers don't exist. And these guys took the traditional path to show that unconventional whistleblowers do. Patriotic duties here. I am grateful to you men for your willingness to stand forward and take the arrows as you have, even from pe members of Congress over here who are trying to disparage you. It's disgusting. I thank you for your patriotic responsibility. Look, the free speech of parents is chilled. The, the speech and the duty of whistleblowers is chilled. We got a problem, folks, and we're trying to fix it. I'm out of time. I yield back. Gentlemen, yields back. The committee, uh, will, Mr. Will, will, Mr. committee will be in order. Members of the audience are, are, should refrain from uh, 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 any type of applause or anything. Uh, the, the chair recommends the gentleman from Virginia for a unanimous consent. I thank, the, I thank the chair. I ask unanimous consent to enter into the record the, uh, the interview of George Hill dated February 7th before the Judiciary Committee in which he explicitly identifies Empower uh, uh, Oversight Mr. Uh, Jason Foster as his counsel for the record. I thank the chair. Uh, without without uh, objection, uh, the chair now recognizes Mr. Garamendi for his five minutes. Mr. Chairman, I have a parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Mr. Garamendi is recognized. Mr. Chairman, I have a parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Garamendi is recognized. Mr. Chairman, I have a parliamentary inquiry. We can do this all day. Mr. Garamendi is recognized. Okay, let's do it all day. Mr. Chairman, I have a parliamentary inquiry. And you're not recognized. Mr. Chairman, there's a member in the side of the dais who, who has not been waived in on committee. Uh, would like to know, is he asking to be waived in, or is he going to send the audience, or has he joined somebody's staff since he's against the wall? Mr. Garamendi is recognized. Mr. Chairman, can I have an answer to my question, please? He, he's a colleague. He's not been waved in. Mr. Garamendi is recognized. Well, we'd be happy to wave him in if he wants to sit in, but he's, he's up in the days area, but he's you, not in the audience. If we he's wave him actually in, he's, standing where, he's actually standing, sitting where most times staff stands. As is customary in the Congress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anything to obscure the facts. Anything to stall the committee hearing. Mr. Unbelievable. No, I'm, I'm not stalling. I Mr. Think Garamendi, Mr. Garamendi is recognized for his five minutes. Okay. Mr. Chairman, I ask that Mr. Garamendi's time be restored since it was taken by inappropriate behavior. Gentleman uh, is recognized. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Uh, this uh, hearing, as similar hearings, tends to devolve into shouting back and forth and accusations back and forth. I'm trying to uh, understand uh, the uh, testimony by the witnesses uh, and their lawyer. I'm trying to find the issue that is pertinent to the committee. Uh, yes, we do investigations, presumably to right. write law to address problems. Uh, I've listened as best I could as the conversations have gone back and forth, and I'm still trying to really figure out why we are spending time here if indeed our task is to address problems, in this case in the FBI, uh, and how we might find a solution to those problems. There appears to be but one issue, as I can try to understand it, and that is that the use of the security uh, issue makes it difficult for the participant, whistleblower, to find satisfaction. Is that the case, Mr. Levitt? Yes, sir. There's, there are limited protections. They were, one of them came after the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act of 2012, just an so executive. Your recommendation is a change in the whistleblower law as it applies to, I suppose, all federal agencies. Yes, because as it is right now for DOJ employees, they have to wait a year after being suspended before they can go anywhere to appeal as a whistleblower the suspension of their clearance. I see. So have you made a specific recommendation to the committee as to the change of law that would address the problem that, you're, that you have identified? That's why I'm here right now. I just made it. Okay. So you believe you have, other than... I would appreciate if, inviting your specific change to the law. I would be happy to, and, and to the extent that it's helpful... That's, no, it's my time. Um, there are other things going on here. Uh, Mr. Freed, you have a very interesting background, uh, obviously in the FBI and beyond. But you've also had a very interesting uh, tour on Twitter. I find it most interesting... During our break to uh, go and vote, the majority, including some Democrats, voted to express support for law enforcement officers and condemning efforts to defund and dismantle local law enforcement agencies, specifically condemning, this is the joint resolution, House Committee Resolution 49, a concurrent resolution condemns and calls to defund, disband, dismantle, and abolish the police. Mr. Freed, have you ever put a tweet out to defund, disband, dismantle, uh, dismantle and abolish the FBI? I have. And the FBI is a police agency, yes? The FBI uh, is my yes. contention that they're a domestic intelligence agency with law enforcement capability. They are a police agency. Thank you. Um, I suppose consistency is the hobgoblin of a small mind. Um, but nonetheless, at least one of the witnesses here wants to disband the FBI. 
which would be counter to what we just voted on on the floor of the House of Representatives, there, there are plenty of problems. There is a formal process for whistleblowers to have their issues adjudicated. We've, 2012, members of the committee voted for it. I certainly voted for it in 2012. And there appears to be a glitch. It would seem to me that we would be useful to use our time to delve into this glitch. Uh, if we determine that it is a problem, then the appropriate thing to do be, would be the chairman of the appropriations, excuse me, of the Judiciary Committee to put forth a bill to address the problem. The shouting back and forth has done little to illustrate or provide information on the details of the problem. And definitely, Gentlemen's time I agree with those who say we time ought not fund the police, including Mr. the Gentlemen's time expired. Mr. Chairman, I ask for unanimous consent to allow Mr. Briggs to sit on the dais. Without objection, uh, the chair now recognizes the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Bishop. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, yeah, I, I will say I've, I've sat uh, struggling to figure out what I think the Americans who may watch this hearing are to take from it. And it is, it is it's troubling. I, it, it, an aspect of the ranking member's opening statement was interesting. I, I heard this part of it that really stuck with me. It sort of suggested, I, this is not what she said specifically, but it was sort of a paraphrase of what I heard her saying to you witnesses, especially the, the three who've been serving the country as FBI agents and before. It was sort of like, so your lives have been turned upside down by the FBI in retaliation for raising questions about abuses of the rights of Americans? Good. How do you like it? That's kind of what I, I heard. It seemed that her perspective, she went on and talked about how people have been victimized by police all across the country. ACAB is the idea. And it's almost like since she thinks they're victims of plenty, it, it's okay if you're victimized. There's a supreme irony in that, isn't there? I mean, you have one of you was concerned about the improvident use of a SWAT team. And they, that's been ridiculed. Another of you has been concerned about whether, about the investigation of people by the preeminent law enforcement agency in the country for nothing more than being on a bus to travel to a place where there was a speech by the president and so forth, and a couple people on that bus were the subsequently looked at, that your concern was whether the investigation was adequately predicated for those people. And that's ridiculed. It's astonishing. Um, one of you was concerned about whether the, about the FBI sending people out to interview persons who were going to a school board meeting and expressing their views because all they were engaged in was First Amendment activity. That's not an adequate predication for the attention, investigative attention of law enforcement. And that's ridiculed. I don't quite get it. I, I will say this, in this process, fair cross-examination and even the impeachment of the credibility of witnesses is, is appropriate. Now, I will say, the things that have been attempted as impeachment of credibility here, no court in the country would allow. 
because they are not fair mechanisms for attempting to do that. But what has struck me is that these whistleblowers have your comportment, your demeanor, your poise, your articulation, your discipline has been exemplary at every point, even as the members on the dais beclown themselves. It's quite a testament, and it deepens something. I, I worried to be candid about this hearing because many Americans, it is my impression, and we're continuing to investigate, many Americans have been victimized by the distortions that have occurred in the leadership of the FBI. And I worried that we might have that. If you ever heard the quote, it's sort of used in athletics, never tell anyone your troubles, half the people don't care, and the other half are glad it happened to you. And that's a supremely pessimistic worldview. I don't really subscribe to it, but you've heard that out there. I think this is, but this is making a clear point, and I commend each of you for what you've done here, coming here and sh demonstrating who you are and letting yourself be attacked in this way because you've borne it really remarkably well. And I think Americans need to hear because there are other glimpses of just how the victimization is going on and how it's victimization at scale. This is one fact that struck me. The Bank of America records, the story that Bank of America turned over the credit card transactions, whether for an aircraft or a lodging, or the purchase of a cup of coffee for everyone who decided to come to Washington, to be in Washington area, the Northern Virginia area. That's one of the things that you asked questions about. There are victims all over the place. All of the people who suffered when the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security got involved in censorship with social media platforms, millions and millions of tweets and narratives being taken. Hold on. Listen to what he just said. They questioned about the information from the Bank of America. The question is, who asked for that subpoena? Or did they voluntarily say, hey, 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 let's figure this out. Here you go. Pay attention. This is very important. Down. That is victimization at scale. It must be resolved. And the fact that those who profess to be most concerned about victimization of people by law enforcement in this country, join in the victimization of you. I think that's the takeaway, at least for me, from this hearing, and my time has expired. Uh, gentleman's time expired. Uh, the chair now recognizes Mr. Allred, gentleman from Texas, recognized. Uh, I yield my time to Mr. Goldman. Thank you. I thank the gentleman for yielding. Um, I want to thank the, those of our witnesses here who have served in the military for your military service. I want to thank you for, for coming in. Uh, we on this side support whistleblowers. I certainly support whistleblowers. And you and the committee majority can be certain that we will follow all House rules and to maintain the confidentiality of whistleblowers until they have been publicly identified, as you all now have here. What our concern with is not really at the bottom whether or not you are whistleblowers that's something that neither you can determine or Mr. Levitt can determine or we can determine that's something that we understand is being adjudicated and ultimately could end up in court uh, where the ultimate uh, determination would be 
Our concern is that you all have met with the committee majority perhaps several times. You have provided information, documents, testimony, um, and we're in the dark. And that's not how Congress works. That's not how committees work. And I'm sure, Mr. Levitt, you would agree with me that when you were on the Hill, that's not how things work. And so that on is the source. That is what, sorry? I just said it, it depended on what was happening. I've seen examples of congressional staff retaliating against whistleblowers, and I've also seen those whistleblowers then refuse to engage with those congressional staff. Fair enough, and maybe, and maybe that happens. But we haven't even been given the opportunity uh, to do that in violation of committee rules. Um, the, ultimately, what we are here for is because these three individuals um, are expressing in various degrees uh, their objection to their treatment with the FBI. They have also, in varying degrees, expressed support for the January 6th insurrection, and in some cases have even allowed those personal views to influence their official duties. Now, the allegations that we are dealing with here today, and the reason why whether or not people are whistleblowers matters or your credibility matters, is you're just the three individuals, three people in an organization of tens of thousands, who are making these allegations, and so credibility does matter. Now are you getting to understand what these hearings are really doing? Let's define whistleblowers. Is the whistleblower credible? Is this okay? Are we gonna let this exist? Oh, thank you for your service. Only if you did the military. You think our FBI doesn't deserve our thank you? Our police officer? Of course they do. They're serving us. Well, most of them are. So what is it that this hearing is about, you guys? What's, what's going on here? We're establishing. No, we're establishing what whistleblowers are. They're not people that write a letter to the IG because sometimes you don't see it in the case of Schiff. It could be someone random that no one knows. That no one knows. Could be someone that's completely not credible but has all the information they need because that's the way it was created. Remember, in the midst of chaos and confusion sown by the tyrants, there are the few, extraordinary beings emerging, scattered everywhere, gifted with intellect and unparalleled abilities, understanding the depth of the tyranny's deception. These could be people that are just donut makers that has a lot of information because maybe that donut maker was a hip pocket asset. How do you bring a hip pocket asset that's nowhere on paper and that you can't freaking even show to Congress because it's so black budget to speak? Message over messenger. This is what the hearing is about. Message over messenger. Pay attention. Because operating, like I said, in the shadows, beyond the reach of these tyrants, for decades, there have been people that have infiltrated the UN system the tyrant's control in what one would say a perilous mission, almost a, a suicide game to rectify the wrongs inflicted upon people. 
and they have unwavering determination. Unwavering determination. Within the depths of the being of such people lies a profound understanding, an unparalleled ability to discern the intricacies of power, manipulation, and that delicate balance, like I said, between freedom and oppression, sovereignty and submission. So while the world perceives them as simple FBI agents, grifters, non-credible, blah, 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 whatever it is, they're actually warriors with true prowess. And their ability to awaken the masses, to step forward and take the arrows to create the precedents and ensure that the definitions are there. Their very existence challenges the foundation upon which society is built too. Because some of these people are beyond the purview of, you know, alleged societally accepted purview of accountability, okay? Away from the prying eyes of elected leaders and the watchful gaze of oversight. They're self-proclaimed warriors. And the insidious puppeteers, they unravel the intricate tapestry, literal tapestry. It's so well woven. Like, all you need to do is pull the thread, Okay. It's a thread. Pull the thread and then the manipulation falls apart. And that's the thing. I want you to imagine a place where a lot of people decided, hey, I'm going to go fix it. You and what army? Watch me. And they don't work together. They don't even know each other. But they recognize what each other does. And they know that they have the common goal. And I mean, that's how you fight a war in plain sight, with no one to see it. The boundaries that we have as a people are determined by the potential we have, the human potential, which is pretty much shattered in this struggle of freedom, knowledge, and unraveling truths that are way stranger than fiction. But people must have more faith, more faith to understand that things have already happened. And now we're in an era of ridiculousness to ensure that we're spelling it out. Here's the, f- the spoon feeding. Spoon feeding. These FBI agents pointed out all these things and they were fired. Not only that, that they were blocked from getting employment, unable to feed their kids. These are their own people. Own people. So your institution is demanding loyalty. Damn, we really need to talk about the INR. That's my favorite. That should be the one that gets dismantled first if we want to break away from the UN system. But I'll get into that next time that I am on air. Please pay attention to what this hearing really is. They're trying to define what a whistleblower is. Because what if some guy who may have been through like, you know, just kind of like the fun stuff, you know how the MIB, they just wipe your mind. And it's like, wait a minute, someone wiped my mind so I don't remember, right? What if that guy like turned up? (laughs) How do you present him? Oh, that's not credible. We're not going to listen. Let's define credible witness. Is it about the witness or is it about the information? I mean, what if you had, what, what did they used to use in the past? Psychic, um, oh, I know this. Hold on. 
I've got the, I got the video for you because I've got a, I've got to run, but I've got a video for you on that. Actually, I think I shared it, but I think I shared that in my telegram, but allow me to introduce it. How do you introduce a whistleblower like this? Hold on. <laughs> Let me get this up. Let me get this up. How do you introduce a whistleblower like this? Hold on. Let's get the website up, the video. Give me a sec. All right. All right. We should talk about this. Touchy subject for me, I guess. But we should. Are you ready? Just a couple minutes. You can go watch it on your own. I think I shared it on Telegram. The Stargate Project is the name of a top secret US military unit and its predecessors that operated from 1972 to 1995. Its purpose was to investigate the potential use of psychic powers for military and intelligence gathering purposes, particularly in the context of the Cold War. If you look up the Stargate Project online, most videos and articles talk about these experiments in a rather mocking fashion, like it was some crazy period in time when the government actually believed in this stuff. Psychic spies armed with supernatural powers. So why is this video any different? Well, I've personally read through over a thousand pages of declassified Stargate material including the 183-page evaluation report that ultimately convinced the CIA to end the program in 1995. Let me tell you, this is not exactly a simple cut-and-dry topic. The CIA did cancel the program, and yeah, they had a good reason to, which is extremely misunderstood, and we'll be exploring that in detail. But despite all this, what they found over 23 years of experiments was compelling evidence. The psychic abilities are real. Now, if you're a skeptic, I'm with you right there. There are definitely some questions that need answering. How do we know these so-called psychics weren't just clever frauds? How can we be sure the researchers didn't skew their results to fit a narrative? And most importantly, how do you know that I'm not just making this all up? Well, in this series, I'll be directly quoting from the CIA's archives, among other start your free seven-day tradition. Stargate investigated what's known as parapsychology, otherwise understood as psychic abilities and related paranormal phenomena. Their initial research began in 1972 and lasted until 1995, with the ultimate goal being to create a trainable and accurate method of psychic spying. Though the Stargate project investigated many different psychic powers, such as psychokinesis, the ability to influence the physical world with just the power of the mind, their primary focus was on remote viewing. Theoretically, remote viewing is using the mind's eye alone to observe and acquire direct information of locations, objects, and events that are blocked from ordinary means of perception. Usually, this implies a significant geographical distance between the remote viewer and the target. For example, a secret weapon storehouse on the other side of the world. The target might also be hidden by shielding, such as a file in a locked cabinet. However, these observations may also penetrate through time, as in a number of cases, remote viewers have seen the past or the future. At the time, the Stargate project developed the most rigorous set of protocols and controls. So I want you to think about it. Now that we're trying to define what a whistleblower is, how do you introduce, you know, 
ideas out there that are <laughs> well documented into the sphere. Well, you have to first define what a whistleblower is. Do we look at their credibility? So now they bring stellar credibility and they say, well, the stellar credibility, well, here's like less of stellar credibility. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Pay attention to what this hearing is about. It's about telling people that this stuff is real and the, you know, people you hear on the internet, you know, and the other people that have been complained are dead. Let's not forget Brie. May have been right. And this is how you segue truth. Maybe if they gave us Julian Assange faster, that would be easier. But okay, we'll just have to go with that. On that note, everyone, God bless. I'm finally going to get rid of that bump under my nose <laughs> um, that has been painful. And hopefully I won't be in pain. They promised me that they will be injecting a lot of syringes there. We'll see how that goes. So um, the whole speaking thing is, I don't know how swollen I'll be. So uh Always remember to sit on things. Don't, don't just let it percolate for a bit, okay? So that way you can understand, you know, where this was really going. What was the real reason we're having this hearing? Yes, to show their crimes. Yes, to show the abuse, but also to define what we look at. Message over messenger. And on that note, God bless.